Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 367 with Paul English of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey, Founder Fam, Nathan here. Welcome back to another episode of the Founder Podcast. You guys are in for a treat. Um, If you've ever booked travel online, you've probably used uh, Paul English's company, Kayak, which he founded in early 2004, which became like one of the most popular search engines in the travel industry. But what you may not know about Paul is that, you know, he studied music and computers in college. He learned Latin in high school. He's a serial entrepreneur. He's co-founded or founded like four other companies in addition to Kayak, Lola.com, Get Human, Boston Light, Intermute, uh, multiple nonprofits. This guy is an incredible founder. And in this interview, like, I'm going to go through with him like it's an incredible interview around like how to hire just incredible people. Um, like I I enjoyed this interview so much. I gave it to uh, my EA Crystal who helps me with people and culture. And she was like so pumped after listening to this interview because she's like, oh my God, this is incredible. So you're going to learn so much. And it's, it's crazy. Not enough people talk about hiring. And this is something... The more and more you get into this stuff as a founder, um, really, a business is built by people. Yes, the founder is leading the company or founders are leading the company. But at the end of the day, like the success and the end product of companies, successful companies you see is off the back of incredible teams, incredible people. So how do you find 
that incredible talent? How do you foster a culture where that incredible talent can thrive? How do you make an incredible place to work so people do the best work of their careers? Uh, So Paul and I go into that and so much more. Enough rambling from me. If you are enjoying these episodes, please do share them with a friend. Um, We work so hard to get like the most out of these world like founders that are so successful and we give you this content for free. So just share this with a friend. Check out founder.com. We're here to help you however we can. All right, that's it from me. Now let's jump into the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, the first question that we ask everyone that comes on is, uh, how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? Well, I started my career as a programmer. I studied music and computers in college. I was a pretty serious musician in college, but then um, kind of fell in love with programming. I was actually self-taught programmer in high school and wrote video games. I sold a video game for $25,000 when I was in high school, which is pretty cool. Then I studied music and computers in college, and I got a job as a programmer. And I worked as a programmer full-time during college for like five years. And then for like three or four years after that, and then ran an engineering group. And then ever since then, for the last 20 years, I've been running my own companies and I've started five companies. And um, I just love the fear of starting a company from scratch, like knowing that most companies fail. And I love the excitement of recruiting a team of people who have that in, like killer instinct and who want to go for it and try something really hard. And I just love the whole team formation thing. So can you tell us a little bit more about this video game? If we just go back, like, was that your first real passion? Yeah, it was, um, I actually have a brother. I'm one of seven and I only have one sibling who works in tech, my older brother, Ed English. And he was actually a pretty famous game programmer back in the eighties. His biggest game was Frogger for the Atari oh. computer, which sold millions and millions of copies. <laughs> wow. And so I was inspired by him and I saw him do it. I said, you know, if he can do it, I can figure this stuff out too. And um, somehow we didn't have much money growing up and there were seven kids, but somehow I talked my parents into buying a computer, which cost $300. And I read the manual and then just, you know, there was no web back then, of course. So I read the manual and then just figured out how to program the thing on my own. And my first game, the one that I sold was called Cupid. And the way it worked was you were a little character and you were in this field where Cupid was shooting arrows and you had to eat these green ugly pills to escape Cupid's arrows to turn you ugly and capture all the hearts. And that was the game. And the thing I was most proud of was the sound effects and the graphic animation. So I was really into sound design and music. And so I put a lot of energy into that and um, just had a blast doing it. Yeah, wow. That's so cool. What a wild story. So you started, as you said, a lot of companies, um, you know, Lola.com. You're now the co-founder of uh, Kayak. Um, so I'm curious, uh, like you sold your one of your companies uh, is uh, Boston Light Software. That was for 33 million. Can you tell us, like, you know, about these companies before, like before Kayak? Yeah, sure. So uh, Kayak was number four. Lola's number five. Uh, Boston Light was number one. And the thing about Boston Light is we were just really lucky. I had a team of 15 engineer, 15 people, mostly engineers, and we built an e-commerce platform that made it really easy for a non-technical small business 
to set up a store on the internet. This is back in 1999. And we had like three or four companies who wanted to license our technology so they could put store building software on their website. And then the more we spoke to these companies, they all wanted to acquire us. And I made the decision to go with Intuit as opposed to the other companies you talked to, because I really liked the culture at Intuit. I liked the founder and I liked the guy who would ended up being my manager for a couple of years there. And so we built, it was sort of like press a button, create a storefront and let you customize it with graphics and logos and add products really easily and integrate it into QuickBooks, which is the biggest accounting software in the US. So like Shopify in a way. Yeah, it was. It was like a very early version of Shopify, totally web-based templates. We had designed templates and you could create your own templates, use an existing one, modify it. Fast forward, like bring us up to scratch today. You're now doing something in the podcast industry. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So my day job after I sold Kayak, so we, I ran Kayak for 10 years with a guy named Steve Halfman. He was a CEO and I was a CTO. So I was in charge of product design and technology. And we took that public in 2012, sold it 2013 to Priceline for $2 billion, which is a very nice outcome for the team. And then since then, I've been running Lola.com and we do business travel and expense. It's going really well. However, I just have this itch around podcasts that I love podcasts. They're transformative. It's really cut down my reading, which is bad because I used to read quite a bit. Now I just listen to podcasts all the time. But I find podcasts are an amazing way to learn. There's like so much good content out there. But I have a couple of frustrations with podcast players, podcast apps. And the two things I don't like about the Apple podcast player and the Spotify podcast player and the other ones that are out there is one, I think they make it really hard to find new content. Like, how do you discover a podcast? How does someone discover your show? And I think we've come up with a unique way to let people discover new content. I can describe it in a minute. Uh, the, the product's called Moonbeam. The website is moonbeam.fm. And so we solve two problems. One is discovery. And the second one is, what's the relationship between the podcast hosts and the listeners? So for example, if your listeners are really inspired by one of your shows, what do they do with that inspiration? Like, can they interact with you? And so what we're doing is building a set of tools directly into the player that let your listeners interact with you. They can click a button and send you tips. They can click a button and join your email list. They can open a discussion form and give feedback on your show. They can create clips of your show. If, they, if you have a show, let's say it's 40 minutes, and let's say there's something in particular you say 10 minutes in that they find really poignant or educational, they might create a one-minute clip of just that segment and they can publish it out to social media to get other people to learn about your show. And they listen to the one minute clip, they like it, they click into it, and then they're a subscriber to your show. So we're trying to find ways to discover content and then to give the listeners a voice in helping shape your show almost in some way and helping them get involved in your show. Yeah, wow, that that sounds like an incredible product. Like. How did you come up with that idea? Was like obviously you said it was your own frustration. Um, did you get user feedback? Like like how, how is that coming about? I have a friend named Young Me Moon. Um, she runs a podcast called HBS After Hours. She's a professor at Harvard Business School, and the premise of her podcast she has like I think a few million listeners. And the premise of her podcast is it's three HBS professors who sit around and talk about bullshit. And it sounds really boring, like who wants to listen to a bunch of business school professors, but they're incredibly entertaining and incredibly knowledgeable. So the first thing I did is I went to her because she's a good friend and she's running this popular 
show. And I told her, how do people find your show? Like, can we create better ways for people to start discover your show? And then do you want to interact with your audience? And she really helped me form the initial vision. In fact, the name of the player, it's moonbeam.fm. It's named in part after my friend, Youngmi Moon. Yeah, wow, that's so cool. Um, so look, you've started a lot of successful companies um, in actually many different industries, like e-commerce, security, customer service, travel, and now podcasting. Um, like, what do you think you're getting right each time? I think the most, I mean, I'll say two things. I'm sure your other guests have said this before as well, because it's, it's sort of a tautology, but the most important skill for any entrepreneur is recruiting. You know, are you a good recruiter? Are you always recruiting? Are you recruiting 24 seven? When you go to a bar at night and you meet someone, are you thinking, is this person talented? Are they exceptional? Are they gifted? Would I like to work with this person? Or if not, do they know someone that you'd like to work with? So you just have to have your radar that you're always recruiting. And, you, and to be a successful entrepreneur, you need to be, learn how to become a storyteller. And podcasting is about stories. So I almost think that by listening to podcasts, people can become better entrepreneurs because they can learn how to become better storyteller. And storytelling is about recruiting, which is the first most important thing you do, raising money, getting press, um, getting your first customers, getting biz dev, all of those activities an entrepreneur has around storytelling. So the first thing I would say is become a really gifted recruiter and work 24 seven. Don't shut it off at five o'clock. Don't shut it off on the weekend. Just always be thinking, I want to meet amazing people that will enrich my life, that I want to spend time with them and hang out with them. There's a saying that you're the average of the five people you spend time with. Well, up your game, like figure out who do you want to spend time with? You spend a lot of time with people at work. Why not work with people who are exceptionally gifted and fun and humble and kind and ethical and funny, you know, hilarious. So just always be looking for people like that. And when you find them, do whatever it takes to get them to quit their job and to come work with you and help you on your mission. That's the first advice I would have. The second thing, and I'll stop at two. The second thing is most tech companies fail not because they couldn't write code, because there's really good frameworks out there right now. There's a great like stack overflow. There's a lot of good places where you can GitHub, where you can get code and incorporate it and get feedback from the programmers. Most tech companies fail for one of two reasons. Number one, there's an implosion of the founders. They end up hating each other and they create a toxic environment and people just leave. And it's sad how often that happens, but it does happen. And I, I can say more about that in a minute if you want to hear more about it. And then the second thing is, it's not that the tech doesn't work. It's they build technology to solve a problem that no one cares about. So my biggest advice to an entrepreneur after recruiting is, are you sure you're solving a really big problem? Like how big a problem is this? Is this a problem people would say, yeah, that'd be nice. That'd be nice to have, to have a fix of that. Or is a problem where they say, I will stop whatever I'm doing to get your product. I'll pay whatever you want me to pay because that's a huge problem for me. And why waste years of your life working on a small problem when instead you could work on a big problem? So those are my two advice off the top of my head, just at a high level. One is just always be recruiting and learn about recruiting, read about it, listen to podcasts about recruiting, read blogs about recruiting, read books about recruiting, hang out with people, good recruiters, hire people, good recruiters. So focus on your, your recruiting game and then focus on validating. Are you sure you're working on a hard enough a problem that people really, really want solved? 
Mm, love it. Um, when it comes to recruiting, do you have any recommended resources? I have a page on my website. My website is just my name. It's paulenglish.com. And I have a page there about my tips on recruiting. I think it's paulenglish.com slash hiring.html. It's an article I wrote many, many years ago. And from there, I link to a few blogs, which are inspirational to me. Joel uh, Sposky, I think his name is Joel on software. He, he wrote a really good thing about recruiting. Paul Graham's written a really good thing about recruiting. Um, there are a number of books out there. I would um, just make it part of the agenda with your company. Like when you hire your first two or three people, just say, how do we become a like great recruiting team? How can we get better? Like, what should we read? What should we talk about? What podcast should we listen to? Just make sure it's always part of the agenda. How can we become a better, better recruiter? If you think about it, so think about your last job and who was the worst person you ever worked with, like how annoying they were. Then think about who's the best person you ever worked with, someone you just loved hanging out with. Well, for your next company, how would you like to have none of the former and all of the latter? Like, why not have a company where every single person is hilarious and witty and humble and ethical? I mean, that creates a great company and also diverse, like people coming from different backgrounds and different cultures. That creates a great company. That creates a company with the mojo. Yeah, no, I love it. I really resonate with that. Okay, so... Um, you, you alluded to something which I thought was interesting as well around uh, the, one of the first reasons a lot of startups fail is because the founders implode uh, or, or like, you know, it's a toxic environment or, or like the founders have a falling out. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's very sad, but how common it is. And I think founders sometimes don't do enough due diligence on each other and they don't sometimes they don't operate with enough transparency. And my advice to founders and, and new, relation, new working relationships is be shockingly transparent and be shockingly vulnerable. And if you're vulnerable with your co-founder and you're just totally honest about what you suck at and the mistakes you've made and what you're afraid of, they'll be vulnerable back to you. People tend to lean in. I have this saying, which is people follow confidence, but they're loyal to vulnerability. And so as a leader and as a co-founder, if you're confident, that's great because people like confidence, but you should also be a little bit vulnerable. And if you're vulnerable with your co-founders, many times you can short circuit things that could become problems down the road by talking openly with them as soon as those problems are seen. Like, don't wait. What happens is founders get bitter with each other because they have just this buildup where one thinks the other one's not working hard enough or they're critical of the other one, but they don't. They don't have it out. They don't have the fight. They just get more and more irritated over the months and quarters and years. And what I'm saying is have the fight. Like when something doesn't feel right, a meeting went poorly, meet after the meeting and say, that didn't feel good to me. Like, let's debug. Let's try to figure out how to not have a meeting like that again. What was going on with you? What were you thinking about? I'll tell you how it looked from my end of the room. I'm curious as well. You talk about a lot about people, right? And when it really comes down to it, like a business is built by people. Um, you talk about talent and recruiting. I'm curious, um, how do you know when it's time to let someone go? And, and do you have any advice, experiences you'd like to share? Um, like, you know, when have you done enough for that person as a leader? When I hire people, I'll always say, you promised me two things. And I'll promise you two things. 
The two things I want you to promise me is one, whatever your job is, let's say you're a designer, you have to promise me you want to be like the best designer in America. Like you want to be really exceptional at your craft and you're going to work hard to become exceptional. And you're going to look at other design blogs. You're going to go to Dribbble and you're going to go to other design communities and meet designers and look at their designs and talk to designers. And you have to have the quest to be the best at whatever your craft is. And the second thing is, I want people to all be energy amplifiers. And I'll describe that in a minute. The two things that I promised every candidate is um, I'll say, you know, I hope you'll make more money here than you've ever made before, but I can't promise you that. I do have a good track record. I've had four successful companies in a row. Uh, Lola hasn't had an exit yet, but we will be successful. And I say, but the two things I can promise you is you'll have more fun working at my company than you've ever had at a job before. And I'm really serious about it. And fun to me doesn't mean ping pong tables. Fun to me means a certain type of intellectual engagement and how people work with each other. And you can curate a culture. And there's certain things that I curate to try to make a culture really fun and transparent. And then the second thing I promise them, one is fun. And the second one is I say, look, if you're a rock star, you know you're good. Like, you know you've been the top performer at your current, at your last job. So you have that confidence. People who are really good, the one thing they want is they want to get better. And so what I promise them is, if you come work at my company, come work with me and with my team, I will accelerate your skill development faster than you've learned at other companies. And we're really serious about that too. And we we care about like what we're reading and how we give feedback and who are the mentors we bring in to mentor our team and who are the guest speakers we bring in to speak to our team. And um, yeah, I think if you're serious about, they promise you those two things, you promise you those two things, those two things. The thing about that promise you make to them as far as most fun and skill advancement, part of that is if you have cancerous people in your company, you're going to violate that promise you made to every single employee. So when you find you're in a situation where you have a cancerous employee and you cannot do a course correction, you must separate. Because if you don't separate, you're kind of fucking over everyone else at your company. You promised them the most fun job ever. And yet you're making them work with someone who's you know, really challenging and won't change. So do many, like obviously people have gone through your hiring process where they end up becoming a cancerous employee, but how, how often what's your strike rate with those promises? It's probably one out of 10 end up getting fired, which sounds really high. But the thing is, I'm really serious about most fun job ever and skill acceleration and building great products. And if you have someone who's a drag on the team, why would you do that to your colleagues? Yeah, like, yeah, in a practical sense, yes. Why would you do that to your colleagues? I think the part that is tough, I think, for most founders is having those difficult conversations. I think a common theme that you definitely see is you you tend to let that person, you let it drag on more than it ever should. Do you resonate with that? Or it sounds like... You've got yeah. the experience. One of the things that I've done as a manager with decades of experience is I will coach people in my team. When someone has a problem, I will say, you must create, treat this as a crisis and work on it immediately. It's like when a family member is sick, you don't take the slow boat. Like you get them to see the best specialist immediately. 
Because if someone in your family is sick, you do whatever it takes to get the best possible medical care quickly. Okay, well, if someone in your company is quote unquote sick and creating problems, you need to get on it immediately. Your first goal is to help them, to let them see what their, what impact, what negative impact they're having on other people. And hopefully if the person has some self-awareness and a desire to be a productive team member, they'll appreciate the feedback and you can coach them and work with them on changing their style. And I've had a lot of success doing that. But in the case where someone is not working out and they're not coachable, you must separate quickly. And new managers drag their feet. And sometimes they wait months or maybe even a year and they've known someone's problem. And it's just like you're damaging your team for a year to let that problem continue. So my thing is, if you can't fix it and you should try really hard to fix it. And I have been able to turn around many, many people. But if you can't fix it, you must separate. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast from Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in the trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. You talked about something interesting as well around curating a culture and making it fun. Can you tell us more about that? Because that's uh, that's an in, that's. I don't know if many founders are that strategic with culture, like like the way that you described it. Yeah, I mean, I grew up with six siblings, so as a family of nine, so two parents and seven kids, we lived in a three bedroom house. And my dad was a drinker. And so when you live with a family of nine in a small three-bedroom house, there's a lot of dynamics in play. And you're always wondering, like, what's the mood going to be of my dad today? Is he going to be angry? Like, what's going on in the house? And you end up kind of debugging the relationships in the house, like to make the house peaceful. And it's funny, two of my siblings have become therapists, I think, from their experience of growing up in this packed house, this little house. And I think I probably spend 5% of my time as a psychologist where I'm debugging interactions and I'm observing interactions and I observe body language and I observe tonality and I observe how people speak to each other. I know if when you pay attention, like you'll notice things, for example, do you know that men interrupt women way more than women interrupt men? That's something you'll notice if you start paying attention to body language. And when you notice things like that, then what you need to do is say, all right, that's not cool. So how do we fix that? And then you come up with plans of how to coach people to tweak their behavior just a little bit. You know, there's a saying, which is no one will remember what you said to them. What they'll remember is how you made them feel. And people often don't take themselves serious enough and they don't realize the weight of their words. I had a guy reach out to me on LinkedIn last year. This broke my heart. And he, he was reacting to something that I posted and he reached out to me privately and he said, I worked for you 30 years ago. And 30 years ago, you said something really mean to me, which is 
plagued me for 30 years and questioned my, myself. And that was the worst message for me to receive. I felt awful. I mean, I just telling the story right now, I feel awful thinking about it. Like, I can't believe I said something unkind to this person and the fact that he's been carrying it for a long time. And I wish someone had coached me when I was 25 years old and a manager for the first time to say, your words are important, like be kind to people. And it doesn't mean you have to agree with people, but you should listen to them and be dynamic with them and try to create a fun relationship. So I learned that early in my career, I read a ton of books about management. When I first became a manager, I hired a coach to coach me and I learned to focus on like literally interactions, body language, tonality, email, just interactions between people. And I try to coach people on how to make those interactions more fun. Yeah, love it. Thank you for sharing. Um, that, that's a really heartfelt story. Uh, would I be too cheeky to ask to, would you feel comfortable sharing what that, what that person exactly said that you did? Yeah, I don't remember exactly the words, but it was something like we were in a meeting. There were a few people there. I came in. I was criticizing the work he did, and he made a suggestion, and he claims. I find it hard to believe that I would say this because I think I've always been known as someone who's kind, but he claimed that I said something to imply if he doesn't fix it, he's going to lose his job. Like I was really frustrated at him, and I basically said, you know, you're completely screwing up the project and we, we have to get this project back on track. Are people going to lose their jobs? I said something like that. And I don't remember what I said. And I find it hard to believe that I'd said something that was explicitly cruel because I'm not that type of person. But anyway, I said something that really upset this guy where he thought about it years later. And that was just like terrible for me to realize. Yeah. Wow. Well, look, thank you for sharing, Paul, because, um, yeah, I, I think you've got a wealth of experience uh, and yeah, I, I can feel your vulnerability. I can feel your kindness. So thank you. Um, I'm curious. Uh, one thing you've talked about is shiny object syndrome, which is a, a mm -hmm. common thing for early stage founders or, you know, immature founders. Um, how do you balance that like shiny object syndrome and, and remaining focused while still being like, a dreamer and an innovator. Yeah, the key thing is to have balance on your leadership team. Ideally balance, but I, I like companies with two co-founders. There are companies with sole founders that are successful, but I don't recommend it. There are companies with three or more founders, which, and I've seen some that have been wildly successful. There's a company I was lucky enough to invest in called pilot.com. And I think they have four co-founders and they're just like an exceptional, exceptional team. And I backed them just because I, I thought like they had the mojo, like they had this really good interaction. But um, the balance thing about the shiny objects, you need to have people in your team that are the dreamers and creative and trying to come up with new ideas all the time, every day, and try to take one idea and blow it up and make it like a bigger idea. But you need people who keep the trains running and who watch the budget and who know like what your commitments are to your board and your customers. And at Lola, Lola.com, my day job right now, I'm very lucky that three years ago, I hired a guy named Mike Volpe to join us as CEO. I'm CTO. And 
he and I have that balance where he's like a phenomenal CEO and really good at keeping the trains running on time and really good at communication. And I tend to focus on like, what's the new feature we can develop? What's the new idea? Like who's the customer that's doing the most exciting thing that we can learn from? And I'm always focusing on the new thing. And I think that's great. And it's led to some good features developed at Lola, at Kayak, at my other companies. But I think I would be a total failure if I didn't have a partner who had really good operations skills and really good process and communication skills. So I've always tried to find a co-founder who could complement me, my skill set. But if it's not a co-founder, it's someone on your team. And maybe it's a VP of operations. It doesn't really matter what their title is, but you want someone who's very focused on realistic and meeting mm -hmm. commitments. Thank you for sharing. You talk about um, team uh, and leadership. I'd love to know, like, what is great leadership to you and has your opinion changed over the years? What is the phrase that became really popular a few years ago? Servant leadership? Mm -hmm. Am I saying the right phrase? Servant leadership? Yep. Yep. I like that phrase. I like that leaders lead by being transparent and vulnerable and not afraid to roll the sleeves up and do whatever work is necessary. So like, I like being quote unquote, the secretary in meetings. I like being the one who takes the notes, send the notes out. And that can be seen as an administrative role. I actually think it's a quite a strategic role, but I like doing stuff like that. When we had um, our, we, for Lola, we have 24 seven customer service. It's particularly important for business travel. If you're on the road and your flight gets delayed, like you need someone to talk to immediately who can call your hotel and make whatever changes you need. And at one point, we're going to put in a system where our customers would rate our customer service people on a scale of one to five. And our customer service people were afraid of this. Like, is this going to, am I going to lose my job if I don't get a five rating? And so I said, well, why don't I go first and I'll learn what it's like to get rated? So I became an Uber driver on the side. And I drove Uber knowing that at the end of every ride, someone's going to rate me on a scale of one to five. And it was eye-opening to me. And, um, you know, I, I would watch my rating very carefully and I would be thoughtful of it, but I wouldn't let it dictate my life, but I'd be, I'd be knowledgeable about it. And I don't know, I think based on that experience, it helped influence how we use ratings of our customer service people at Lola. So I think good leaders are willing to try things themselves. So for a young entrepreneur that's starting, what can they do uh, right now to become a, like a better leader? I think they should recruit people that you can learn from, recruit people that have skill sets that you don't have. I recruited a woman to join Lola in the early days, starting as a customer service rep. Her name is Rachel Nisham, and she was a West Point grad, and she led tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. So wow. she's really like badass, like very hardcore process person, strong leadership, trained in management, managing under stress. And we hired her originally as customer service. And it's funny, right before I met her, I walked in the room to meet her. Uh, our VP of customer service, Stacy handed me the resume and said, okay, this is Rachel. I'm excited to have you meet her. And I looked at the resume and I go, wow, West Point, this is Iraq, Afghanistan. This is amazing. But why are we wasting time talking to her? She has no background in tech whatsoever. And Stacy said, trust me, you just, you want to meet this woman. So I met her and literally after 10 minutes, she exuded so much leadership. 
I said, okay, I'm bigger than you. You're like tougher than me, but I'm bigger than you. And I'm not letting you leave this room until you sign an offer letter. Like you must join us. And we became fast friends and she ended up becoming VP of product for us. She got promoted like every six months. She was such a force. And she would be reading management books all the time and coaching us. And give, I was her boss. And she gave me feedback and tell me how meetings that I ran, how they didn't go well and how it could have worked better. So I guess my advice to your young entrepreneurs starting out is hire people you can learn from and hire people who themselves want to learn. You want learning to be part of your culture. Yeah, I love it. And I'm curious though, she started in customer service but ended up being a VP of product. You, you tend to find that, um, like from my experience, that oftentimes, and from speaking to other founders, that usually the person succeeds if they've done it before. Like how, how did she accelerate that fast and, and become a great, a great leader in the business if she's never done it yeah. before? She just was like a, a voracious reader and she would attend seminars and conferences and she would really think carefully about who her mentors were and trying to get time from her mentors. And she was just such an active learner that she just did and she crushed every job we gave her. Interesting. Yeah, there's something very special about people that have military background. They're just extremely resilient, process-driven, and they just have this grit and discipline that is, um, yeah, it, it's admirable. Okay, so um, as a leader, it's really important to identify your own strengths and weaknesses. Um, how, what advice do you have for people to, to do this and uh, to maximize performance? I think the most important thing is have build a learning culture where you're talking about performance improvement all the time, find mentors inside your company and outside your company. And as long as it's always in the agenda, there should be a number of issues which are always in the agenda, like kindness should be on the agenda. Like, are we kind to each other? Are we kind to our customers? And that should be something you talk about. Uh, like honesty should be on the agenda. I think also learning should be in the agenda. Like at the end of a meeting, one of the things Rach used to do at the very end of a meeting, she'd run a meeting with 20 people and she would say, there'd be literally five minutes left. And she would say, how could I have run this meeting better? What could have we done better? It's a very vulnerable thing for her to do, but she demonstrated as a leader that she wanted to get better. And people followed her lead and they, it became part of the culture at Lola. The, we all want to get better at our jobs and we want to be better teammates to each other. Yeah, no, I love that. Um, because when I think about it, like us, like, like as, as a founder, you're, you're self-taught. So your ability to learn um, is, is how you grow, right? So if you, you need to find others that, that are obsessed with learning. Um, and I think that's, yeah, because you can work it out, right? You, you don't have to have done it before. You can just work it out by just learning from others or reading books or resources. Um, okay. So I'd love to switch gears and let's talk about um, Kayak. Um, can you share with us kind of, you know, the, like the details of, of how uh, the sale to Priceline came about and what that looked like? Yeah, Kayak was a lot of fun. So we had several companies try to acquire us over the years. 
we were in discussions early with Microsoft, with Yahoo, back when Yahoo was a powerhouse. Orbits, a lot of the online players were interested in acquiring us. We had no interest in being acquired, but we we would have conversations every now and then. There was one funny one that I can tell a story about. But anyway, we've had conversations over the years. We decided to take the company public. Priceline came after us before the roadshow and said, we want to preempt. We want you to cancel the roadshow. We want to buy you right now. And my business partner, Steve, said, what do you think we should do if we can get a good price from Priceline? Should we just go for it? And I said, I sold my last two companies. I want to take one public. Like, I haven't done it before. Let's just try it. And they'll want to buy us after we go public. So let's just take it out and see what response we get from the market. It's riskier. We don't know how the market's going to respond. But we had incredible numbers. We had 200 employees and 300 million in in revenue. We had 1.5 million in revenue per employee. It was a very, very profitable company and fast growing. So we knew we were going to do well. Anyway, so we took it out, did the roadshow. It was incredibly fun, great experience. I hope every entrepreneur gets there someday. And then as soon as we were done, we we had conversation with Priceline again, and they bought us as a public company. And I was happy because I got to take a company public. That's a really fun thing to do. And we also sold the company and sold it to great buyers. Priceline is a great company. It's now known as Booking Holdings because you probably know this, but most Americans, I know a lot of your listeners are in the US. And what people don't realize in the US is the day Priceline acquired Kayak, I think Kayak was actually larger than Priceline.com, had more traffic. I don't remember what the numbers are, but I think we were similar, maybe larger. But the magical thing about Priceline was many years ago, they bought this little Dutch company called Booking.com. And although Booking.com is not a popular company in the US, it dominates travel in every country in the world except for the US. So finally, after many years, the Dutch had a sense of humor about this as being 90% of the revenue for a a small company that's called Priceline. They said, guys, can you just rename the company? So now it's called Booking Holdings. (laughs) They were great buyers because they let Kayak run independently they have a good culture. It, it, was a, it was a really good outcome for the team. Oh, that's awesome. And I'm curious, you said that uh, one of the funnest things that you hope um, a founder gets to do is take your company public. I thought that would be super stressful. Oh, I don't know. I guess there are stressful parts to it. Like the thing that I mostly didn't like was all the rehearsals. Rehearsals. So yeah. many meetings. Yeah. So many bankers doing the same presentation 100 times over. But the actual roadshow, the week when you're on the road, I thought it was fun. And Steve and I would do stuff to have fun with it because let's say we did 100 presentations in a week. One time, right before presentation, Steve said, you do my sides, I'll do yours. <laughs> and just to kind of like mix it up a little bit. So I presented the sales and marketing strategy and he presented the technology strategy. And we did it to make fun of each other a little bit because he was making fun of the way I presented my slides. I was making fun of the way he presented his slides. It was incredibly fun. And then the next presentation went back to our natural roles. And I learned by watching how he presented technology, taught me some things. And I was a better presenter after watching how he presented my stuff. And maybe he learned something from me as well. I'm not sure. But we would like play games during the week to keep it interesting. And, you know, (laughs) Steve said one time, I bet you 20 bucks you can't use the word elephant in in your presentation or whatever. I don't know what the word was. It's probably something PG-13. 
but we would just play, we'd just have fun with it. And it was a, it was a great week. It's a great experience. It would be an incredible like bucket list to ring the bell, right? Yeah. It was a little anticlimactic for me because I mean, it was fun, but the whole team wasn't there. And to me, kayak, it was about the team. It wasn't really about Steve. It wasn't about me. Steve was a great CEO. I'm a decent CTO. I have skills. I'm confident in my skills. But like, I'm not being modest when I say the reason Kai was successful was because a number of people on the team were ridiculously gifted. We had this guy, Bill O'Donnell, chief architect, best tech guy I've ever met in my career. Just scary smart, scary fast. He led the mobile product. Um, Lincoln Jackson was designed most of Kayak with me. Um, Jeff Rago was wrote most of Kayak's user interface. We just had a number of people on the team who were crazy gifted. And so being on Wall Street and ringing the bell, it felt false to not have them all there with us. So I rushed home from New York and we, we ran Kayak. Uh, Steve ran the sales and marketing team out of NOLA, Connecticut. I ran the tech team out of Boston. And after we rang the bell, I jumped on the plane, got back to Boston as quickly as I could to sort of party with the team and break open the champagne. They all watched us on TV. And then we went out drinking for the rest of the day and had fun together as a team. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, so yeah, how come your team can't go like, like, or, or can't be part of that? Like you, obviously you, you spoke of some, some senior leaders, but yeah, why, why is that? I don't know. We have 200 people on the team and I would have loved to have it all 200 there, but um, I don't know if they allow that. Mm. on NASDAQ. I don't know if you can bring 200 people. I don't know if, I don't think it would fit 200 people <laughs> like where the bell is, but yeah, maybe but you yeah. can. Maybe we didn't realize you could do that. Yeah. Cause like, yeah, look, uh, I could imagine, yeah, that there would be a, some wild parties. Yeah. Well, we did have some great parties after the IPO. We had an IPO party uh, maybe a week later or two weeks later, and it was epic. We spent a fortune and um, just had a really great time. No, oh, that's incredible. Well, look, um, we'll work towards wrapping up, Paul, conscious of your time. Uh, we'll move to what we have is the hot round, hot seat round. So just 30 second answers, four questions, and then we'll wrap. So first question is, who do you look up to now? Who are your mentors? Um, Mike Volpe, who's the CEO of Lola.com. He's someone I learn from every day, and he's a very different style leader than me. And I love watching the style of his leadership. Young Moon, I mentioned, uh, is a professor at HBS. I love her strategic thinking and her energy. Um, those are the first two that come to mind. Damresh Shah, he's a friend of mine. He's the CTO founder of HubSpot, which is a wildly successful SMB marketing platform. So those are the first three that come to mind. If you could have a conversation with your 20-year-old self, uh, what's the one piece of advice that you would give? Well, this goes back to what we were saying earlier. I think it would be be kinder. Your words matter. There's this whole thing about people aren't going to remember what you said, but they're going to remember how you make them feel. Make people feel good. Even when things aren't going well in a relationship and you, like I just came from um, a meeting with a friend that didn't go well. And but we were very like honest with each other. And I think learning how to have disagreements, but in a way that's like loving and respectful of each other. I wish someone coached me on that when I was 25. What's one book every entrepreneur should read? Oh, I think I'm going to pick an odd one. I guarantee you none of your prior guests have ever picked this book. I'm going to pick a book which is about passion and it's about chasing a dream and it's about teams and it's about diversity. 
It's called Mountains Beyond Mountains by Tracy Kidder. It's a story of this ragtag group of medical entrepreneurs who set up a hospital in Haiti. And it's a great, it's an incredibly well-written book. It's exciting. And they're amazing leaders. I've actually gotten to know them, the, the two the two main founders of the nonprofit. The nonprofit's called Partners in Health. And I love that book. I think it's a book about leadership and, and passion and compassion. Yeah, awesome. I'll have to check that out. Um, if you could have dinner with one entrepreneur, dead or alive, who would it be and why? And that's the final question. Oh, this is so easy for me. Benjamin Franklin. I have been obsessed with him since I was a little kid, since I first read his biography. He actually went to the same high school as me. My high school in Boston, Massachusetts, it's called Boston Latin School. It was founded in 1635. It's the oldest high school in North America. And Benjamin Franklin was one of the many famous alum. And um, I just liked how prolific he was and how multidisciplinary. And I would love to, if someone could bring him back to life, I would love to, if I could have eight hours of his time, I would love to blow his mind. Like I would show him the internet. I would show him an Xbox or PlayStation. I would take him out of my Tesla. I don't know. Like I, I just like to take someone who's that much of a genius and that gifted and show him what's happened in the last couple hundred years. And that'd be amazing. Yeah. Love it. Usually people struggle with that one. They have to really think you got it in, you got it pretty quickly. Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much for your time, Paul. That was a like a really fun, uh, transparent, vulnerable interview, sharing a lot of experiences. Congratulations on all your success. I look forward to watching what you do next, especially uh, with moonbeam.fm. Uh, that sounds like an interesting tool. And uh, yeah, look, thank you so much for your time. All right. It's great to meet you. Thanks a lot. Thank I really you. appreciate the time. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.